0: First reading is in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, picking up at verse 12, it's page 826 if you're using that blue Bible, Matthew twelve beginning, or 21 beginning at verse 12 through 17. This is that final week of Jesus' life where the gospel accounts slow way down until spend chapter upon chapter on those final days and this was one of those moments in that last week. And Jesus entered the temple. And they said to him, Do you not hear they said to him, Do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read in Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And now we turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, on page 802, as we continue our series in Malachi. Uninvited, and I would encourage you again and strongly encourage you to keep your Bibles open to this passage Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, which is flowing right out of last week's passage we read, verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read from chapter 2, 17 through 3, 5. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh, as in the days of old and as in the former years, then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. So what I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we bring... We long for your justice, and we long for your rightness to prevail. We pray for revival and reformation in your churches. But we don't often know what that will entail. For Who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your mercy. Our hope is in your faithfulness. Our hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Father, this day, speak and give us hearts to hear and heed. Amen. You may be seated. So there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide, and there are questions. By the way, kids, I ask you in one of the questions to memorize um, the first and last verse of uh, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which we'll sing at the end of the service, just those two verses that Charles Wesley wrote. Well, you can just pull out that insert, and those two verses are right there. And I think it would be great for you to memorize. Um, It's a great one. My friends, geocaching. G-E-O-C-A-C-H-I-N-G. Geocaching is a fun and adventurous hobby. I highly recommend it to everyone. What in the world am I talking about? Yes. So geocaching is like a treasure hunt, but you use longitude and latitude. And so there are websites out there that you can pull up, and they will tell you where there are caches. There are little treasures that someone has put out. We used to have one out here. I don't know if it's still here, but one was here in our front drive. There's one over Church of the Servant. They're all over the place. And what you get to do is you go to that website, and you look for a cache that you might, or set of caches you might want to go to, and then you, you uh, take the longitude and latitude, and you put it into your phone. Usually if you have a compass on your phone or something like that, you can put it in there. And it will take you, and it will guide you to the general area where this cache is, this little treasure is. And so, it's quite a lot of fun. I mean, you get lots of ticks and sunburns and other things, but it's great. You end up in wonderful places. I love it. And, uh, but it's that longitude and latitude. That longitude and latitude give you a standard that says, and it has said to me more than once, lost! Lost! I've been lost once or twice, It say to you, way off the mark, I've been off the mark before looking for treasures and caches, and at times it will say, bingo, you're close to the cache, now you have to spend an hour finding the silly thing which is right in front of you. It's kind of like the children's game, if you guys don't like geocaching, you'll like this one, you remember the children's game you used to play, hot and cold, remember that? Right when your older brother, or older sister would hide something in the house and say, "Now you got to find it," and they would inevitably say, "Oh, you're cold. Oh, you're so cold. You're starting to get frostbite. Oh, you're so cold. Even the polar bears are putting on park is where you are." Right? You know that one. And then you get a little closer to it, and they say, "Warm. Are you getting warmer? Oh, you're so hot. You're going to start sweating." Right? Whatever. Right? And you know from that that, that that's a standard guiding you to where you need to go. I say all of that. Because in a very real way, that is exactly what God is doing in Malachi. In chapter 2, verses 10-16, through which we read last week and worked through last week, we saw how the people were walking down the path of the priest's profanity, the priest's irreverence. They were doing so in their own social, communal, and familial, or family, infidelities. They were way off the mark. They were freezing cold. The standard told them such. And as I pointed out to you, the men whom Malachi specifically, the Lord is specifically addressing, the men had opened up Pandora's box and were unleashing a toxic cocktail of social chaos through their marital infidelity and their divorce and their bringing in unbelievers into marriage relationships and so forth. And so more comes burbling to the surface here, what we just read, comes burbling to the surface like a sickening film floating on top of a pool of water, contaminating it and making it nearly undrinkable. But remember, the aquifer that is feeding the pool is back in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you. I have loved you. And so God loves them deeply and thus loves them decisively. Or to put it again in the words of John Owen, God loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant, loves us into heaven. I have loved you. And so that's what's running through and under every section in Malachi. I have loved you. And so here, as we look at chapter 2 17 through 3 5, we see here God's justice in conflict with the public's skepticism. God's justice in conflict with the public's skepticism. And that's the two points. And we'll begin with the public's skepticism. It's right there in verse 17. Right there in verse 17. What a charge. What an accusation. What an indictment. To weary God by our words and our ways. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. It's the very same thing that the Lord accused their forebears of hundreds of years before over in Isaiah 43 verse 24 when he said, when the Lord himself said, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. My friends, that's a dark place to be when God says, you weary me. And what's their response? How? Right? It's a dismissive response. How? And based on what we've read back in verses 10 through 16 and their actions, you realize they don't want to know how. They don't care how. They don't want an answer to their question because their attitude is clearly... In the words of Alanis Moore said in her song, but you, you're not invited. You, you're not allowed. You're uninvited. Oh, an unfortunate slight. That's their attitude. And so their how question is not looking for an answer. I don't know if you've ever run across that. Maybe if you've had kids, you probably run across that on occasion when your kids, you say something to your kids and they go, how? And you know by that look in their face and that sneaky eye, they don't want to know how, right? These people are the same way, they're doing exactly the same thing. And yet God will not permit them to wiggle their way off the hook. Notice what he goes on to say. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights them in them. Or by asking where is the God of justice. They've inverted God's ethic, God's morality. Divorcing their covenant Why? marrying non-believing women and bringing them in. They're turning God's standard on its head, and they're saying, well, God loves it. That's what they're doing. Does everybody get that? That's what they're doing. That's what he's talking about in verse 17. And then there is the flippant response. Uh, Where's the God of justice? He doesn't care. He's not involved. He's not engaged. This is not really his standard. Even if it is, he can't do anything about it. Where is the God of justice? That's their attitude. This will, You have to ask, how does this, where does this come from? You'll notice that these words, this thinking floats again to the top if you just drop your eyeballs down there in Malachi 3 to verse 13-15. When God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant, blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they, they put God to the test and they escape. Where does such cynicism and skepticism come from? In God's people. Well, very likely, this is after a long, hard, gritty, grimy season of disappointments, despair, and discipline. I mean, Malachi is writing sometime during the time of Nehemiah. And those of you who did with me through the Nehemiah series, Rebuilding After a Hot Mess, will appreciate some of that. Some of this is being written during that season after Nehemiah and They've had a hard road trying to rebuild the city and all of that, and there's been so much against them and so many people against them. There's so much defeat. There's so much discouragement. And then comes and surfaces this skepticism and this cynicism. You see it all the time in modern life. It's very likely that you see all this like in the days of Jeremiah. In the days of Jeremiah, when the people had survived the famishing siege by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, and then they were left, the few were left in the, in the land to try to pull their lives together out of the charred remains and the smoldering rubble, and they revolt and disgust and cave into walking by sight and not by faith. They came to Jeremiah and they said after all the devastation and all of that, now they're trying to eke out a living, they come to Jeremiah and say, tell us what God wants. And Jeremiah tells them, but here's their response. Well, as for the word that you've spoken to us in the name of Yahweh, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour our drink offerings out to her and so forth. And they go on in that argument and say... Because when we worship the pagan gods, we had plenty. And every time we come to serve Yahweh, it's just been fire and mayhem and devastation. Their disappointment and discouragement and the times of despair had actually skewed their whole perspective. They were living. They were always looking at the world through a lens of rigid cause and effect kind of equations. That led them to make all the wrong decisions. Well, here's when we prospered is when we did this. And so we got to keep doing this to keep on getting that, which can always be wrong. You know what I'm saying? It's like you fishermen. You know what I'm talking about. You use that, that special lure and you think you can get all those fish because of that lure. Well, it just happens to be it's the feeding time. You went to the right time, but you put your confidence in the wrong thing. Does that make sense? Anybody here fish at all? Am I? Okay, thank you. Bless you. Do you know what it's like to give an illustration and nobody knows what you're talking about? But that's the kind of attitude. They're looking at things in this hard cause and effect equation, and therefore they're making all the wrong decisions. And that seems to be happening right here in Malachi. You can hear it in the almost cataclysmic analysis of the sacred songwriter in Psalm 73. I'm going to I'm going to ask you to hold this place and run over with me to Psalm 73. Go to Psalm 73. Just a couple of Sunday nights ago, we talked about Psalm 73 briefly, and we're at it again because I think it is a phenomenally significant psalm. Psalm 73, you notice it's a psalm of Asaph. It's a priest. This is a priest, one who was actually commissioned to make psalms and sing songs and play musical instruments in God's worship. And notice that in Psalm 73, he begins at the right place. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's always a good place to begin. But notice what happens to him. The next two verses. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped Four. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I slid into the trap of this hard cause and effect equation, I almost lost my faith. I'm looking at the wicked and they're prospering. I'm looking at how they're muscling up. They've got the greatest political power. They've got all the wealth. And I'm going, what? Where's the God of justice? It's really what he's talking about all the way through this psalm. Or at least part of the way through the psalm, and he even mentions when he gets down to verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Being an ordained priest, what he's basically saying, all in vain have I kept my ordination vows. it has been a hard road to hoe, and the, the wicked succeed, and we ain't. I almost gave up, he said. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. When I stopped walking by sight and started walking by faith, my whole perspective changed. Are you picking that up? When I stopped walking by sight and started walking by faith, then it all changed. And that's what he goes on to, to lay out in the rest of this psalm. He even comes to confess his sin. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, acted like a stupid animal. And if you knew my dog, Raleigh, you would understand when I just said that, right? I acted like a stupid animal. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But the writer of Psalm 73 almost fell down that same hole that the people of Malachi 2 and 3 are falling down into. The public's skepticism. And so their final question that they really don't want answered is going to get answered. Where is the God of justice? And that's verses 1 through 5. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. They don't want this question answered, and it's going to get answered. And it starts out with, behold. It's, 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 when God says that, there's good things coming, and there's not so good things. It depends on what's coming after the word behold. Behold catches your attention. God is now answering their skeptical snub And he's going to do so with sarcasm. Yes, God does use sarcasm on occasion. He's going to do it with sarcasm, and he's going to do it with assurance. The sarcasm. Notice that they were just recorded asking, where is the God of justice? And what's the answer? As you look through verses 1, 2, 3, and so forth. The Lord whom you seek. They don't seek him. Do you hear the sarcasm? The Lord whom you seek. They're not seeking him. They don't want him to come. The Lord whom you seek, that is just dripping with sarcasm. The messenger of the covenant you desire. They don't want him. They don't desire him. The message, messenger of the covenant you desire, I will draw near in judgment. Really what God is doing is pushing them. Do you really want me to come? Do you really want me to come? Really? then just know that the one you say you're looking for and longing for will come, and it'll be a smashing time. A little double entendre there, okay? It'll be a smashing time. My friends, God does use sarcasm. Let me just go off on a side note here briefly. God uses sarcasm, but it is rare. And it ought to be rare with us. He uses sarcasm, but it is rare. Like 1 Kings 18 is just the prophets on the Mount Carmel, and all that. It's rare, it happens, but it's very, very rare. It's not intended to be what we normally think of with God. But here he uses it. And then comes assurance. Wrapped up with and woven into God's, God's sarcastic reply to their skeptical snub is assurance. It's an unlooked-for assurance. It's an assurance that goes in the ways that they likely don't want. It's a remedial insur- assurance, a remedial assurance, fixing ins- assurance, if you want to call it that. It's a remedial assurance, answering their cynical charge that God seems to prosper evil. But it's also an assurance that God is bringing robust, real revival and reformation. The prophet is looking and he's seeing God's justice and he's seeing it coming. Down the corridor of time. And he is looking at here in these verses, verse, especially verse 1 through 4, he is looking at the arrival of John the baptizer and he's looking at the arrival of our Lord Jesus. Notice the very first part of verse 1, right? That, that statement comes and is called to mind in the Gospels, called to mind in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, and Luke chapter 7, verse 27, when Jesus was explaining who John is. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And that same promise shows up again in Mark chapter 1 verse 2 as as Mark is also explaining what John's ministry was all about. Preparing the way before the Lord. And then the rest of verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 4 is about our Lord Jesus' coming, coming as a refiner that requires fire, right? He's coming with fire, as it were, to refine, to purify, to bleach and cleanse the soiled garments, et cetera, and all of that. Like when Jesus said in Matthew or in Luke 12, I come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather, division. And then the purifying of the temple in Matthew 21 that we read just a minute ago is pictured here. All that language the Levites being purified, sacrifices actually finally being given rightly by the people and so forth. The temple being purified, pictured here, is looking to the day, for example, when Jesus came into the temple in Matthew 21. And he chases out the money changers from the temple and he tosses all of their cargo out on its ear. But it also, taking this passage and following along, looking at Jesus, you realize it's also about his rebuilding the temple in his resurrection. Destroy this temple and in three days. I will raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body. John chapter 2. And it's looking to Jesus who comes to purify and revive and reform and rebuild His church. That's the language, and when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, you cannot miss it, that now the temple is people drawn together, knit together with Christ who is our peace as the very center. And all of that language here of the purified Levites finally offering sacrifices, pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years, verse 4, is all about His people made into a priesthood and built into a temple. You heard it in the call to worship as Scott was reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious you also are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Do you hear it? Temple priesthood. Offering acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And so, He, the God of justice, whom they have been sarcastically and skeptically asking for, whom they really don't want, is going to c- comes and He will draw near and it will be, it will be to purposefully right all wrongs it will be to precisely reestablish justice in a world filled filled with jury-rigging and jingoism. Jingoism, where you elevate your country and make it your God. Truly, this has all begun when our Lord arrived the first time. And it is unfolding even now, and it will finally be settled once and for all and forever in His final coming as our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it so well in chapter 33 and paragraph 1. For those two of you taking notes right now, I see that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, paragraph 1. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given by the Father in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And so the coming of the Lord that we desire and the coming of the justice that we long for will be grievous for many. Just look at chapter 3, Malachi 3, verse 5. Tell me this will not be grievous for many. Therefore I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. The coming of the Lord that we desire and the coming of justice that we long for will be grievous for many. But it will be the answer of the prayers of many as well and to their relief. As you hear me say often, what's good news for some is what? Bad news for others. And so, I must ask you, which will it be for you? Will it be good news for you or bad news for you? Are you a part of those who have snidely and skeptically and tauntingly said, Oh, where is the God of justice? But are you really saying in your heart to God dismissively, in the words of Alanis Moore said, But you, you're not allowed. You're uninvited to owe an unfortunate slight. If you will but just cast off your cynicism and submit to Jesus and rely upon him you will find the end result far more favorable you heard it in the assurance of pardon that i gave earlier from hebrews chapter 9 but as it is he has appeared christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away the sin sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Submitting to Jesus and relying upon him turns the outcome around for you from the bad news to the good news. John chapter 3, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the son has everlasting life but he that does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Which will it be for you? During this whole Advent season, you're going to hear hymns, you're going to hear carols being sung, you're going to hear them down in the mall, going down the hallways, you're going to hear them on your radio. Whatever you do for God's sake, Don't be happy about it and comfortable and sit there and go, oh, this makes me always think about Christmas and family and all that stuff. Wonderful, that's wonderful. But let it say to you again, the messenger of the covenant whom you seek is coming. Are you ready for him? And the way to be ready is to come to him, submit to him, and rely upon him. And as Christians, we often want God to come and we often want God to revive his church. We long for Jesus to refresh godliness and holiness and seriousness and vitality in his church. That's why we fight all the time. Because we always want it because it's not here enough. It's one of the reasons why. But this passage reminds us that real God-caused revival and Jesus-brought reformation may be actually quite unnerving, almost shifting, almost a shifting of the communal, the communal and societal tectonic plates. What happens when the tectonic plates shift under the ground? What happens? Anybody remember? Earthquake, right? And everything goes crazy. Our Lord, bringing reformation and revival may be almost like a shifting of the communal and societal tectonic plates where our our socially safe sins. Yes, there are socially safe sins. But there's still sins. Where our socially safe sins and our culturally conventional crimes will be toppled and smashed on the floor into so many shards. You hear that warning in the passage we read before the confession of sin. Notice God is talking to people who claim to be his people, who are longing for the day of the Lord. And what does he say in Amos chapter 5? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It is is not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness. In fact, he goes on to say, I hate your worship service because it doesn't go with the way you live. That's what he's saying there in that. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We pray for revival and reformation and it might be quite unsettling. Now, usually when we pray it, we're very smug. Because what we mean is God reformed them and revived them because I don't need none. You know what I mean? That's what we normally think really wanting that, it may be unsettling. And so, my friends, if this is what you really want, christ coming to really reform and revive His people and His church, then that desire has to be more than words. That desire has to be more than sentiments. That desire has to be more than, to quote Rush Limbaugh, may he rest in peace and rise in glory, must be more than symbolism over substance. We must let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We must move away from the personal and cultural and family irreverence and infidelities. We must move back toward God's order and God's justice, kind of like GPS coordinates, right, or longitude and latitude that tell you where you are. We need to move back toward God's order and justice which begins here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through chapter 3, verse 5, means returning again to God, our Godward relationship, but also restoring our spouseward relationships. And then it begins to ripple out, thinking about verse 5, it begins to ripple out in our societal engagement. Where we turn our backs upon the life authorities, the sorcerers, and listen to the Lord. Where we become no longer a people who swear falsely, but people who are men and women of their word. Where instead of oppressing the the worker and his wages, we are honest in our business dealings where instead of being a part of oppressing the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, we stand up for the voiceless and those who are vulnerable to victimization. Where instead of not fearing God, we honor God in all of our societal engagements and in the sanctuary. We really want that. As the old Chinese prayer used to be, Lord, revive your church beginning with me. Lord, revive your church beginning with me. My friends, this will come. And it will come about as we, thinking about 1 Peter 2, as we come to Him who's a living stone, He who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also then are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. It will come about as we come to Him who was rejected by men. And as we do this and we move this way, then we show ourselves to have already been made by grace. We show ourselves to already have been made by grace and becoming even more a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy dear friends this is Advent Christmas doesn't start until December the 25th and then it's the 12 days of Christmas and you can sing all about your parakeets and whatever else is in the trees right this is Advent this is the time it's an intentionally focused time for us to think do we really want Jesus do we really want him to come Would we have welcomed him? Or would we have been those who cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! It's a time for us to reflect that we hear it through Malachi. And we find that if we recognize that no, we often will not welcome Jesus. And we want to. And we find the door is wide open. We can come to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can say, Lord, forgive me and help me to be more welcoming. And we hear, echoing in the background, chapter 1, verse 2, and I have loved you. I have loved you. Prepare the way of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your servant Malachi and the burden, the oracle, the burden he bore. We pray that we will listen to your prophets and the Spirit of Christ inspired, pointing them to Christ and pointing out that they were actually ministering to us. And so the day has dawned that they longed for. Lord, may we also relish it and long for it. Lord, where we have gone astray, where we have been sarcastic, where we have put our hand out and told you you're uninvited, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what we've done and that we would repent of that and we would turn to you. We pray, Lord, for your church, that you would revive your church, beginning with me. In Jesus' name, amen.